So here's, it's my pleasure and privilege to introduce Lucky Takoha. So if you haven't seen Lucky before, oh, we did have the video last year when you did your testimony with Fantail, and so a lot of people probably saw you then. Um, but Lucky's just been travelling around many churches, and he's in the South Island quite significantly now, and he's going to shift to Kaikoura, so I think I need a trip to Kaikoura. I do. Yeah, yeah, I think that's you know, some seafood. Soul, soul food, I, sorry, sorry, I meant soul food. Yeah. So anyway, Lucky, hey, we're going to hand it to you. So Father, we just pray that Lucky would uh, minister what you want him to minister. Father, we would hear what you want us to hear, and that, that Father, we'd be impacted by the message and the testimony that this man has to share. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, thanks, Ray. So, um, yes, so I'm Lucky to call her, and um, it's been really, I've, I've had an awesome time here um, with you guys, Friday night and yesterday, again yesterday, and um it's a privilege to come in and share, share my testimony, I think. Um, when I talk about my testimony, it always gets me. I mean, I, I've shared it a lot of times, but um, I don't know. I think there's still a little boy inside me, and um, that's still a bit hurt, but um, the Lord came and saved me. Um, but it still has an impact. Um, firstly, I'd like to thank Rob and Catherine for putting me up at their house. And man, I'll tell you what, I've slept like a log the last couple of nights, hey, and you know, it's been fantastic being there, and it's um, it's so peaceful. I've um, really enjoyed being there, and um, just it's actually the best I've slept in uh, in a long time. I said to my wife, "It's the best I've slept for a long time." So I'm um, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to staying there tonight too, by the way. <laughs> um, but on the way on the way here to church this morning, um, the Lord gave me a couple of things that He wanted me to share first, and I was kind of getting a little bit angry because I was already prepared. And um, but he had told me this uh, that I am a I am a just God. I said God is a just God, and um, God always puts wrong things right. And um, I was driving along and I was thinking about that. It's, it's actually totally true. Um, and I wrote here I was so angry with God when my life changed, when my life went from being in the world and being truly broken to being saved. Um, I got this thing that festered in me about being angry at God. And I was angry because why weren't you there earlier? Why come and get me 50 years later instead of getting me when I was five? Why do I have to go through all these things that I'm about to share with you? Why didn't you save me then? So I was really, really angry. Really angry. And um, he said to me, I was outside at my house where I live, and he said to me, but I was always there with I was always there with you, and I had my hand on you. And you know what? I looked back over that time when he said that to me, and I looked back over my whole life, and he had always been there. Um, I just had never seen it. Um, but he is a just God. And you know what? He does put every wrong situation right, but it's in his time. So we must remember that. Um, so, yeah, this is my... This is my testimony of my life, and um, there's a few new guys in church, so this is a little bit for you. There's an expectation that when you walk into a building where two or more of us are gathered in his name, that God is with us here right now. It's one thing that's for sure. The other thing is you need to walk into this building with an expectation that something in you is going to change. When I used to go to the pub, I had an expectation before I became a Christian. I had two expectations. 
One was I was going to have a fight. And the second one, I was going to get drunk. And those expectations were always met. So we have an expectation that we walk into a church, and that's not going to get drunk. That's right. And you're not going to have a fight, hopefully. (laughs) I came close to it, but... um, but your life should change. There should be an impact. Something should happen to you while you're here. And otherwise, this is all pointless. So when you come in here, expect something to change in your life. Um, we all have a testimony, and they're all powerful because there must be a test to have a testimony. So we're all tested. And you know what? I love hearing testimonies. I hate sharing mine, but I have to share mine all over the country. But I can't come back and talk at some point if you don't know who I am. So this is an introduction to who I am and where I've been and why I am, how I am now. But we all have a testimony. And you know, one thing that I, I know is that, that when my life changed, my sisters, my brothers, my nephews and nieces, my daughters and my son's lives have changed too. Their testimony is nothing like mine. Thank goodness. They have a testimony of their own, but they all know God now. My brother and my sister go to church consistently like myself. Their children know the Lord, so do mine. So that we've put an end to this brokenness, this broken life that we had, this spiritual curse that was over our lives, and we walked out of it because mine changed because God came. I was the one of the 99 that he came for that day and changed my whole life, which changed my whole families. So it's a blessing now. Um, so... When I looked into testimony, because I'm all about, oh, I don't know, it's just my way my brain is. I should have been a teacher. Mind you, I did leave school at 14. Um, Google says testimony. This is what, when you Google testimony, this is what it says. Testimony helps you heal and bring us closer together. That's what it says. A testimony is helps us heal and bring us closer together. You get to know who I am, and I get healing by sharing it. This might also have an impact on somebody that's feeling hopeless because my testimony is about how good God's love is and how much he loves us because I wasn't deserving on any, anything, but yet he says I am. So the Latin root word for testimony is testis, meaning witness, compassionate witnessing of a personal series of life helps us recover and help others do the same. Powerful stuff. Revelations twelve eleven. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. It's all powerful. Psalm 66, 16. Come and hear all who, are, who, all who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for me. I'm about to tell you what he's done for me. So I start off with this. My mother was Maori and my father was Irish. Which means two things. I eat a lot of potatoes and I know a lot of jokes. But underneath that, it says, once were warriors. And the once were warriors part is, um, when that movie came out, the movie came out 29 years ago. And I know that because my mother died four weeks after it came out. And I went and watched that movie with my mother and her sister. And my mother said to me after we'd watched that movie and we walked out of the picture theatre, what did you think of that, son? I said, well, that doesn't look too bad. I thought everybody's life was like that or worse. My mother had tears in her eyes because she knew our life had been worse. Everybody I knew's life was like that. 
you know, my mother was a Christian. She prayed for me every single day. Her sisters were Christians. They were raised as Christians. But we lived in a once were warrior's house. And my father was an Irishman who loved alcohol and violence because of his life, his father and his relationship, his great-grandfather and my grandfather's relationship. It was this thing that I spoke about yesterday, passing this baton on, passing it down, keep passing it down, of broken fathers, broken sons, broken fathers and broken sons. And my father used to come home drunk and beat my mother up. He beat my, used to beat me up. When I got to seven years old, he started attacking me. It got so bad that in the end, my mother used to send me away, put me in foster homes and boys' homes because it was the safest place for me. And when I would get sent home, my mother used to hide me in the boot of the car so my father couldn't find me. And I'd hear his car come home, my mother would just shoot me out the back and put me in the boot. My father would go looking for me. But sometimes we'd get caught out and um, my father would find me anyway before getting to the boot of the car and beat me up. He broke every bone in my face except for my skull by the time I was nine years old. My mother used to take me to the hospital and tell lies. She was a Christian. And she used to lie to them. If we ever lied, we used to get to hiding. You know, I used to hear this. And I'd say, Mum, that's not true. She'd say to me, son, I can't tell them the truth. I'll lose you for good. Well, I wish I had have been gone for good. So that was tough for my mother. I got, a, I got abandonment issues because my mother would take me to school and then not come home, pick, come back to school, pick me up. I'd be left standing on the street. One day I'd been standing there for that long, this lady came along, picked me up, took me home. She used to be able to take me home any time she wanted because my mother might not turn up for two or three days. She wouldn't be able to leave the house because she's been beaten so badly by my father. But she prayed for me every day. And one time when, she was, when I was seven, she taught me how to pray. She told me about this God that I know now. This loving God. That he would answer my prayers. And you know the very first prayer I asked was, God, please take my life. I don't want to live. I was seven years old on my knees at the bed praying for this. Wanting it to be true. But however, I keep waking up. I'm still here. I've died clinically three times in my life. The Lord brought me back three times. But you know, it wasn't easy living in our house. We were poor. My father was aggressive and violent. My mother was a really lovely lady. Do you know, I didn't think my mother had any flaws that I realised and dealt with these programmes, doing these programmes that I run. That one of my traumas is abandonment issues. And that stemmed from my mother not being able to come and get me. But I had to let that slide because there was a real legitimate reason for my mum to not come. My father did the ultimate thing to me that I've had done. He shot my dog. Um, I was eight years old and I'd been misbehaving. Um, I find that hard to believe that I misbehaved, but... um, I have five mental health issues. Um, I have um, OCD, dyslexia, bipolar, Asperger's. And there's one other. 
But however, I don't think I was a difficult child. I think I was challenging. But um, I'd misbehaved this particular day, and my father was sick of telling me the same old thing he told me. He got my dog, and he went and got his gun, and my dog was yelping, trying to escape, and he shot him. And that day that he shot my dog, I remember it to this day, something in my heart changed. And what changed was, I was full of real hate, pure hate, pure rage for everything. And I was, I was never the same since from that day. And it really affected me, really affected me for a long time. And that effect had an effect on a lot of people because of the spin-off from it. So... I went through school and I didn't last long at school. I was 14. I was only been in the fourth form about four weeks, six weeks. And I left school because I became violent. And um, I, had a lot, I had a lot of friends that were girls, um, but uh, I didn't have any friends, didn't have any other friends. But I didn't like bullies and I became violent to people that were bullying and picking on people. I'd actually be turned into a bully myself. But I left school, and not long after I left school, within four weeks, I had to leave home. I wasn't allowed to stay at our house because I didn't have, I had to pay rent. And um, I didn't have a job. When I did get a job, I was getting reasonable money. And I decided to leave home and stay away and not worry about ever going back. Fortunately, the job I got, I was sexually abused at. And 14 years old and stuck in the world and trying to make my way in life. And I had a boss that sexually abused me. I had nobody to tell. Didn't know what else to do. I needed this job, I needed the money, but there was a spin-off that I was being abused. Till I got to the point where I couldn't take that anymore either. So I left. And when I left, I'd already been in the boys' homes, in the foster homes. I went into the youth prison. You see, the thing is, people that are going through that system and that cycle, don't turn you away. They bring you in. So I got brought in by a group of guys that were all the same. Unfortunately, um, they were all gang members. But I don't think it's unfortunate, actually, because they were my brothers, but they became my new family. And the greatest thing about different gangs and clubs is they don't ever turn anybody away. They welcome everybody. And our system and our society is not always like that. So they welcomed me in. So youth prison, prison, and rehabs. That became my life. Right up till my life changed. Three months before I turned 50 years old. Um, oh, yeah, one of my other mental health issues, I believe, is Tourette's because I've got filthy mouth. I'm doing my best um, to not swear. And I haven't sworn yet. Um, but I haven't finished. <laughs> so, no, I'm only kidding. You can beef it out, surely. <laughs> But uh, yeah, but um, but that became my life. So I was uh, at the mercy of the world for fifty years, and it's a long time to be in the world. And I was in a part of the world that was as dark as it can get. Um, I have thirty-six friends that have passed away: um, suicide, alcohol, and drugs, um, and accidents. And some have been murdered. It's been quite a number of them murdered and killed. So I've seen as bad as the world can be. It was a horrible place. My whole thing here I've written here is addiction, hard drugs, alcohol, sex and violence. That was my whole world 
That was everything. My first addiction was heroin. I was addicted to heroin and put a needle in my arm when I was 16. The three other people that were doing it with me are all dead. They were my three best friends. They died before I was 21 years old. I carried on on the heroin until I was 24. Then I went from that onto harder drugs. Harder drugs. Keep getting harder. So I always had an addiction. And I had an addiction because I was unhappy. There was no real joy in our life. Do you know that joy is written in the Bible more times than Jesus is? That's how important joy is. It's so important. There was no joy in my life. The only thing that brought me any sort of something that made me feel normal was drugs, alcohol, violence, and women. Nothing else did. So it was a concoction of just having as much as I could possibly have of it. All right, here's was Suicidal from the time I was seven to the time I was almost 50. Three months off. It's a long time to consider your life's not worth it. I thought about it all the time. It was the front of the thing, right at the front of my head all the time was, today should be the day. Because when I didn't care about myself, I didn't care about anybody else. I couldn't. I truly didn't care about anybody. And my behaviour showed it because of the violence that was in my life. And with my friends, because the birds of the feather flock together. We were all the same. We all have the same mental health issues, I'm sure of it. In fact, the funny thing is, well, it's not even funny, I've got three friends left out of my whole group. One's in a mental home, one's in Sunnyside, one goes in and out of Templeton, or used to be in Sunnyside as well. And the other one's struggling with depression, really badly. And they went through this whole thing with me. They'd all been sexually abused too. They'd all been through prison, they'd all been through boys' home. They've all had addictions, they've all got broken lives. I'm the only one that's got God in my life. So I go to my friend that's still struggling with depression and try to talk to him about God and tell him about what happened for me so that it can change his. And, um, yeah, I really miss all my brothers, but it is what it is. They've heard my testimony. They understand it, but they just can't get their head around God. And I understand that too. They're still angry at him too, like I was. And I get that as well. But the funny thing is, my mum was a Christian, and she always prayed for me. She told me this daily. You know what? When I was in prison, she'd always come and see me every Saturday, every Saturday, come and see me. The boys home, come and see me. Always come and see me. Went to court, always come and see me. Mum always prayed, always came and see me. She died when I was 26, and um, I was pretty much at the peak of as bad as I got at that time, and... Um, I had, she had stomach cancer, so I watched her. She starved to death, actually. It took eight weeks. So I watched her die, and I sat with her every day. And I sat with her drunk. I wasn't falling all over the place, but I just didn't stop drinking the whole time because I didn't know how to cope with it. I didn't know how to deal with it. And um, when she passed away, I didn't think anything could get any worse. And um, I thought it was as bad as things could get. And then there was a little glimmer of hope because the partner I had at the time found out she was pregnant and we were having twins. And that kind of changed things for me. And I was really looking forward to these twins being born. 
and we had two daughters, but they died within two weeks of being born, which was 12 months after my mother had passed away. So then it, it triggered me again. And um, I'd never prayed so hard in my life. I'd never prayed apart from that first time I'd asked God to take my life. The very next prayer I said was, please God, leave me with my daughters. I just want these. I'll never ask for anything else, just please leave my daughters. Millie died first, and then my second daughter, I named her Hope, because that's all I had. I had nothing else. I only had Hope. So I named her Hope. She died an hour and a half later. So when that happened, I went even darker then. I went into this real dark, dark world. And I, I had to tell all my friends to stay away because I wasn't safe. And they weren't safe for themselves, but I was really unstable. And I said to my girlfriend, I didn't want to be with her anymore. I needed to be on my own. So she left and went and stayed and lived with her mum. And I decided that I was going to take my life. And um, it was how I could put things right. See, I was a rat or a mouse, and I was on that wheel and just running and just running and just running, and I couldn't get off this wheel. And it didn't matter what, how hard I tried to give up drugs, the violence, the fighting, any of the stuff, it didn't matter how hard I tried, I just could not get off that wheel. The only way to get off that wheel for me was to take my life, to end my life. So... I thought, I'll make a plan. So I made this plan. I'll go down and get a bottle of Jameson's whiskey. I'll buy a Stanley knife. I'll come home. I'll drink the whiskey. And I'll cut my wrist. So that's what I did. I woke up in the morning. I went down and got my Jameson's. Came back to my house. Brand new Stanley knife. Sat there and drank the whiskey. I wasn't even ups- upset. I wasn't unhappy. I wasn't anything. I was thinking I was a relief that this was all going to finish. That there was no more suffering going to be done. That it was over. But I was a drug dealer. And in the house that I lived in was a five-bedroom house with a swimming pool, tennis court, and it was right on the beach. And I had more food than you could poke a stick at because I grew up hungry. So I overcompensated. I had two chest freezers full of food, cupboards full of everything. But I knew these people in the street that they were solo mothers that didn't have anything. So I always said to them, Always come to my house if you ever need any food for your kids. Come and help yourself. Help yourself to my freezer. Help myself to my cupboards. If I'm not there, just go in. The day I decided to take my life, I sat in my chair and I finished my whiskey and I got my standing knife out and cut my wrist. And if you can see it, it's the shiny stuff on my wrist. And I seen the blood come out of my arm and I started squeezing my hand like that, to make it hurry up because I wanted it to end quick. And I started pumping my wrist like this and I was watching it pumping out and pumping out and I watched the pressure get lower and lower and by the time I could only see it just trickling out of my skin, I was out to it. And I woke up in hospital. I wasn't expecting I'm waking up anywhere. I thought I was in heaven I quickly realised I wasn't. But when I opened up, everything was bright. <laughs> and um, I was so gutted that I was still here. That was the third time I died. I died on the way to hospital. 
what had happened is one of the ladies that come and helped herself to food walked in, seen me on the floor out, rung the ambulance, they revived me on the way to hospital. And I was really gutted. And then I was ashamed. And then I was never going to tell anybody. I was never going to talk about me taking my life because I thought I was gutless. I thought I was weak. Believe me, it took me everything that I had to try to do this. And it was the only option. I had a thing sitting on my shoulder saying, nobody's going to miss you. It's never going to end unless you do this. These things were getting whispered into my ears, and I know what was being whispered, and who was whispering it was the guy down there, not my heavenly father. And I agreed with him because it all made sense. But then we got God, and he had other plans. And boy, did he have other plans. So what happened was, my mum had always talked about forgiveness, and I knew I was a mess. So I thought, well, what's this forgiveness? And I started trying to process what my mother had been talking about. She said, son, you have to forgive. You can't go through life how you are. It's, it's going to destroy you. I was already destroyed. So I started looking into things I had to forgive. And my father was the first one. I hadn't spoken to my father in 24 years. Last time I told him, I spoke to him, I told him I was going to kill him. So I thought, well, that's a good a place to start as any. Rang up my father and said, hey, I better come and see you. He freaked out when I was on the phone. He said, what's up? I said, I just need to speak to you. He goes, okay. Gave me his address. He was in Auckland, I was in Christchurch. So I flew up. Flew the following day to go and see him. And anyway, uh, I got to his house. It was very awkward. We had a terrible relationship, like the worst you could think of. I'd hated my father, wished death on him, prayed for him to die, everything. And um, it was, we made small chat. He said, well, what would you like to talk about? I said, I'll talk about it tomorrow. He goes, okay. So I stayed the night. He came in the first thing in the morning. It was like seven in the morning, woke me up. He must have really wanted to know what it was. And anyway, he said, what is it? I said, Pop, I forgive you. He goes, really? I said, yeah, you're forgiven for everything in our life. All my past, I forgive you. He goes, that's good. My father had become a Christian. My father became a Christian by the time I left the house. I thought he was a hypocrite because all the stuff was still in my head. But I'd forgiven him. And I said to him, he said, well, why did you do that? Why have you forgiven me? I said, well, when were you going to forgive me? When were you going to ask for forgiveness? He goes, I hadn't thought about it. I could have killed him again. <laughs> he was a Christian. I said, well, that's why I did it. I needed to. The funny thing is, two weeks later, I flew home the next day and we just separated, parted ways, and that was done. Two weeks later, my father rings up and says, I've got cancer. I've only got a few weeks to live. I said, okay, um, I'll get on the plane, I'll come up and stay with you. So I hopped on the plane and went up. My father was living in a house, he had a beautiful place and that. And he went to the hospice the next day. I stayed in the hospice with him for six weeks till he died. I got a bed put at the end of his bed. I picked him up. I put him in nappies. I bathed him. I showered him. I wiped his ass. Well, his bum, sorry. Um, 
toilet to them, shower them, put ice around his gums when his when he didn't make any more saliva because of his medication. And I carried him. I even snuck him out of the hospice. My father said he wanted to go to the beach. So I put him out the window and went around and got my car and lifted him out. Took him down to the beach because my father loved the sea. We grew up at the beach. My father really loved the sea and he wanted to have a love, another swim. So I took him out for a swim. I'll tell you right now, I look bloody weird walking down the beach holding my dad's hand where he's in nappies. Didn't look right, hey? People were looking at me and my old man. I'm walking holding my dad's hand and he was in nappies and I was taking him for a swim and I didn't care what anybody thought. My father said to me, I knew it would always be you, son, that would be here for me. And my father was a great father to my sister and brother. He really was. He was fantastic to them. I don't know what happened with me and him, but he was good to them. But I was there. I was the one that went back and nursed him and looked after him. I was the one that paid for his son and other daughter to come back and see him from Australia, me. I was there for him. And I did it because when my what my mother kept installing in me was to forgive people, to move forward, because there's freedom and forgiveness for yourself. And man, I tell you what, I was so glad that I did that. It made a massive difference for me. And you know what? Um, when my, before my father passed away, I said to my father, this is what I'm going to do for your dad. I'm going to make you a headstone while I learned how to carve in jail. I'll make you a headstone. I'll do your service. I'll bury you. I'll pack up your house and you'll be all finished with. Everything will be done for you and I'll do it. And that's exactly what I did when he died. And I ran his service as well. And um, it was to honour my father because um, the sad thing is I was more broken than my father. Yet I had it on my father's whole life because I didn't understand that. So it was a real realisation and it's got him deeper and deeper and harder on me um, since I became a Christian to know that I had harsh I judged my father because we get measured with the same judgment as we do on others and I was hard on my father but I realise now where, why it was how it was so I came back to Christchurch and everything was a bunch of roses and we had those earthquakes and that was fantastic too apart from all the people that died I feel sorry for everybody that missed out and struggled through those times but for me in business I was a drug dealer and a concrete placer. There was no better time in this country. We had all these contractors coming from all over the country, coming to Christchurch, and they all needed methamphetamine. And there was plenty of concrete work to do, so I was going to make plenty out of it. So I jumped in with boots and all into those businesses harder. And everything was going great. And I ended up with my, my wife, Haley. She was a godsend. I actually asked, my, I asked the Lord for a wife. Somebody that, no disrespect to any hookers or prostitutes or strippers, but they were my girlfriends. The only women that could tolerate my life were, had that past. They were addicts, strippers, prostitutes, whatever. It didn't make no difference. Nobody else could tolerate my rubbish. But I ended up with a godly woman, my wife Haley. But I asked for her. I really needed somebody. I really wanted a partner. And one that was so good, everything that I wasn't. And I got exactly that. You know, I was so blessed to have my wife. Um, But I got given my wife. And six years after the earthquake, 
I said to my wife, I want to move to Kaikoura and retire. She said, that sounds like a good idea. I was 49 years old. I'd have made enough money. And, um, well, I thought I had, believe me. It was all illegal money. And um, so she said, well, let's move. So we moved. And I hadn't been in Kaikoura very long. I'd been there three months. And I don't know how many of you here know Pastor Brian, or if any of you do, Pastor Brian O'Connor. Well, I knew Pastor Brian O'Connor through surfing. And um, I didn't know he was a pastor. There we go. So I didn't know Pastor Brian was a was a pastor. I didn't know that. I just thought he was a surfer that lived in Kaikoura. And anyhow, long story short, my wife and I drove down to the supermarket and I was going to get my beers for the weekend and um, my smokes and I had whiskey and all the rest of it because that was my normal weekend was just to get drunk on my porch and do stuff all day and then get drunk in the evenings. Well, anyway, while I was at the supermarket, Pastor Brian came out of the supermarket, him and his wife, Lisa. And I was just pulling out in my car, and he put his head in the window and said, hey, Lucky, why don't you come to church tomorrow? Well, I told you I've got Asperger's. And one of the traits of my Asperger's is I can't lie. But I try. (laughs) So he said, well, why don't you come to church tomorrow? I said, um... I was like that, thinking about it, and I was trying to come up with a lie, and his face was right there, and it was getting uncomfortable because it had been a couple of minutes. <laughs> and I just looked at him and I says, you okay, I'll see you tomorrow. He goes, great, 10 o'clock, and he walked off, and I can't say what I said. And my wife just looks at me, and she says, you're kidding, aren't you? We ain't going to church. I said, I wish I was kidding, but we are going to church. I just gave that man my word, and my word's worth everything. We're gone. So I got home and started drinking, power drinking, because I was quite nervous about coming to church. You're not normal. <laughs> Christians aren't normal. I had a reason to be concerned. Woke up in the morning, terribly hungover. I said, don't worry, love, leave it to me. We'll get out of here quick. Drove to the church, heard all that rotten music playing, waited till it was just about finished, sneaked in the back. I'd already parked my car facing home. Sat right at the very back, heard one of the last of that one of the ugly songs. Sorry, worship team, your music was beautiful. But remember, I was listening to Rage Against the Machine at the time and Pantera. It was a bit different didn't hear any of the message, just sitting in there hating on everybody and hating everything. You know the kind of person that walks into church like that? So it was that guy. Pastor says, right, we'll do one more worship songs and we'll have a cup of tea. I said to my wife, right, that's it, let's go. Quickly shot out. She goes, don't you want to stay? I said, no, let's go. Got straight out of that church before any Christian could talk to me, hug me, touch me, try to get me a coffee, out. Jump in the car, zoom straight home. Started drinking again. Said, that's never happening again. I'm not going there. I hated it. The week went great. Going to Kaikoura, Saturday, following week. Bump into Pastor Brian. 
I said, hey, Lucky, uh, how was church? How'd you find church? I said, uh, this is going to be hard. <laughs> well, how was it? I said, to be honest, it was horrible and I hated it. It just came out. He goes, oh, that's no good. How about you come, how about you come tomorrow? I was like, oh, I'm trying to think of a lie. Nothing would come. I looked at him and he's standing there looking at me. He was like really close. He's a bit creepy. And he goes to me. I said to him, you okay? I'll see you tomorrow. We left. My wife said, truly, are we honestly going? I said, I've just given that man my word. This is all from conditioning from prison. Your word is everything. It's everything. When you have nothing, you've got that, and it better count for something, or you're nothing. My word had just been given to this man. I said, yes, we're gone. That's how it is. She goes, oh, great. So I got home, drinking again. Come to Sunday. Go down to church. Face my car, face at home. Wait for the rotten music to finish. Walk in, grab the back seat. I couldn't cope with it. I don't even know what they're talking about. I truly had no idea what they're talking about. Just thought, this isn't for me. Finished cup of tea. Quickly, let's go, love. Don't let anybody touch you or grab you or hug you. Left. Going to Christchurch, had to do some stuff during the week. Said to my wife, right, that's it. We've got to put a plan together. Can't be having this, going to church stuff. She goes, oh, yeah? What kind of plan do you want? I said, okay, it's like this. Anytime we're, see, when we see Pastor Brian, and if he invites us to church, you have to lie. <laughs> I can't lie. If you want to keep going to church, leave it to me. We're going to be going every time. But you, you can lie. You have to lie now for us. It's saving us. She goes, okay, good idea. So on the Friday, I had to get something for breakfast. I shoot into town, and Pastor Brian, the stalker, turned up. <laughs> and the only thing I could think of was, shit, I don't have my wife. <laughs> and I was just, oh, my goodness. So he comes up to me, how was church lucky? I says, it was horrible. Couldn't stand it. I was getting more brutal, too. He goes, that's no good. Come, how about you come on Sunday? I was like, I knew you'd say it. Okay. And this was painful. Boy, my wife was going to get it when I got home, eh? So I said, yeah, right, see you Sunday. I've got to go. I've got to go to town and cross you. I drove straight home, said to my wife, it's your fault. She goes, what? I says, that stalker just got me in town. You're at home. and We've got to go to bloody church on Sunday. She goes, okay, well, let's go to town. So I had to drive into Christchurch. When I came into Christchurch, did our business, we're driving back. On the way back to Kaikoura, I got arrested. I'm a person of interest. And in the police, Kaikoura police station, they had this massive poster of me. It's about that high. <laughs> Just so they couldn't miss it. They had this poster of me about this high. And I was a person of interest and I was already still wanted. I was wanted in Christchurch for a crime. So they sent out a cop and he got me on the way back into town. 
Now this cop, his name's Dave. I don't know Dave. I don't know any of those cops. They pulled me over every day in Kaikoura why I'd moved there. Just out of interest. Because I'm a person of interest. Because they seen me turn up into the town. They thought we were to keep an eye on this guy. Every day. They pulled me over. Every day. And I'd had enough of this. Because I'd gone there to try to change life. I'd gone there to be get away. I'd left the guys that I'd been with. I'd been with my guys from the time I was 14 to almost 50. I'd walked away. I was finished with our club. Done. Dusted. And they let me leave. I've been to prison that many times for our club and everything else. I'd done my share. I'd done everything I could. I'd gone there to change my ways. But I was getting pulled over all the time. But this cop pulled me over on the Saturday. And the very first time he hopped down and says, Hi, Lucky, how are you? I looked at him and thought, I said, I'm good, thanks. What do you want with me? He goes, there's a warrant out for you. I need to take you in. I said, oh, yeah, okay. He goes, do you mind? I says, uh, does it matter if I do? He says, it doesn't, actually. He goes, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll follow you home so you don't have to lock up your car and confiscate that. I'll follow you home, drop off your wife, leave your car there. I'll take you down the station and I'll process you. Then I'll bring you home. I've never been spoken to like that by a cop, by a policeman. Never in my life. He talked to me like I was normal, a human. Never, ever had I been spoken to like that before. There was something different about him. I knew that. I said to my wife, there's something different about that guy. She goes, what? I said, boy, just how he's talking to me, just how he's been to me. There's just, I, there's something different. I don't know what it is. And you Christians should know what that is. Because you carry something different. He was that. What is it? I don't know. So we get processed and everything else and drops me off home like he said. And he said to me, sorry about the hassle. Sorry about the hassle, I was a crook. I'm supposed to be a hassle. Sorry about the hassle. Oh, yeah, don't worry about it, Dave. And he left. So I thought, heck, I've got church, I might better get drunk. So I started drinking. And while I was drinking, my wife said to me, hey, love, you better come to bed. You're getting a bit out of hand. I said, well, why is that? She goes, I heard you swearing, there's no one there. I said, yeah, you know, I'm getting a bit annoyed about stuff. See, I started festering about this cop. And um, all of a sudden, he wasn't nice. All of a sudden, he hadn't treated me well. All of a sudden, he is my enemy again. All of a sudden, they've been pulling me over every day of the week. All of a sudden, all this stuff gets dumped on me. All all this deception, all the lies from the prince of lies. He's telling me all this stuff. So I started hatching a plan to, to harm them. If I'd done what I planned on doing, I would have been in prison for the rest of my life. I hatched this dark, evil plan. And my wife said, that's it. Get to bed now. That's it. Finish. No more drinking. I thought well, there was no point arguing with her. So I went to bed. And I woke up in the morning. I said, right, let's go to church. She couldn't believe we were going. Because of what had been happening. We're driving to the church. We're heading to the church. And she's driving because I'm still hungover. We drive past this police car. There's a cop that lived around the corner from me that was my number one enemy that continuously pulled me over all the time. So I thought I'd better hang out the window and wave to him. Right at his face as I'm driving past. And he looked straight at me and did nothing. My wife goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm just trying to give him an excuse to come and pull us over so I can beat him up. 
She goes, don't, don't start this. But that's where I was at. And he let me go. He'd been pulling me over every day. He didn't even want to do anything about that. We're only 100 metres from the church. Great behaviour before you walk into the church, I tell you. Walk into the church. I was past caring about the ugly music at this stage. Sat at the back. My wife and I, she's sitting next to me. Worship music started. We're standing there. Look around. This guy walks through the doors, and it's Dave the cop. And he turned around and looked at me, and his, his eyes went like that. And my eyes were the same. And he looked at me, and he just put his head down and walked straight to his seat. And I grabbed my wife and says, hey, love, that's that cop from yesterday. I said, I've got to sort this out. And she just grabbed me by the arm and says, don't fight in here. Because beforehand, I wouldn't care less where I was standing. If business got to get sorted out, you've got to sort it out. And I couldn't care less if it was in the church. I've had fights in the worst places you could ever think possible, even on a marae, at a tangi. I couldn't care less. It was disrespectful, but that was me. I said, no, I don't want to fight him. I've got to get sorted out. She goes, no, you're not. Just stay here till after the church finishes. So all the music went, didn't hear anything. The pastor gets up. Why well, standing there? I'm sitting there. There's something wrong with my heart. And I just go to my wife. Hey, love, you're going to have to watch me. She goes, why? I says, I think I'm going to have a heart attack or a stroke. I'm not sure what it is, but there's something wrong with my heart. It's doing all this funny stuff. And she goes, are you serious? I says, I'm deadly serious. I says, no shit, I'm not joking. There's something wrong with my heart. There's something happening to me now. I said, I don't want to die in here. Last place I was going to die was in the church. For goodness sake, I didn't feel safe. <laughs> Too many Christians in there. Keep an eye on me, love. I cannot die in here. She's looking at me. I'm really worried. I'm not kidding. I was panicking. I just wanted church to finish. But it didn't. And I was just sitting there getting worse and worse and worse. And I was holding a hand. I was just crushing it. And I just knew something was happening in my chest. I'd never felt this before in my life. Church finished. They did a worship song. And as soon as they started on the worship song, I jumped straight up out of my chair, ran straight over to this guy, this cop. Sat him behind him. He was with his wife and four little kids. I went behind him. I tapped him on the shoulders. And, I turned, and he turned around. And he was just soaked. He'd just been crying the whole time. His wife said he's cried through the whole service. I said, hey, bro, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I put you in that position yesterday. He goes, I'm sorry too. I didn't mean to, but I had to. He goes, you know what, Lucky? Can I pray for you? Well, well sure. I don't even know what pray for me was. He goes, great, well, you come up the front. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, this is a bit wacky. Getting me up the front. Takes me out the front. He goes, all right, listen, I'm, I'm just going to get, do you mind if I get three or four guys as well? He says, well, go for your life. Oh, I don't know what was happening. Then they all gathered around me, surrounded me. Like you Christians do. I was outnumbered. Surrounded around me. Put their hands on me. 
And at first I thought they were speaking of Māori. But I didn't know what they were speaking. They were speaking foreign languages all muddled up. And then one of these other guys standing there said, Lord, I ask that Lucky forgives us for all the injustices we've done in him and his life. Then we haven't been there to protect him when him and his mother and they were being attacked. I'd like his forgiveness. His name was Matt Boyce. He was the head cop for Kaikoura. He'd already looked at my file and seen what I'd been through and where I'd been in my life. See, I've seen cop cars turn up to a house that turned around and left our father with me and my mother. I hated them. They were supposed to look after us and protect us, and they didn't. And they carried on into my life. And I got seven assault charges on cops. I couldn't harm enough of them. And that cop was the head cop. And I didn't realise, but all of them there, standing there with Dave, were all the police from Kaikoura, except for the one out on the street, the one that I really didn't like. And they all prayed for me that day. And my life changed, just like that. Bang, finished. I had my number one enemy was the police and one other gang in this country. And the police were no longer my enemy. Because I stood there, and the Lord put it on me that, under this roof here right now, I'm brothers with them. And my hate and my animosity towards the place was gone that day. And I know what happened with my chest. God gave me a new heart because I'd never felt for anybody before. I'd never had empathy in my heart. And I got given empathy that day. The Lord gave me a whole new heart. It was a transition. And I was never the same since. So that was the changing of me. The whole thing changed from that day onwards. Nothing was ever the same again for me. And that cop that was the last one, me and him have made peace. And man, that's out the gate. He's a Christian too. He pulled me over the other week when I was up there. Of course, I didn't have my safety belt on because tough guys don't. So I grew up, you know, wear that. So I still don't. It's a bad habit. I'm trying to. But I don't like him. But I wasn't wearing my safety belt and I'm driving in Kaikoura. And he, I couldn't believe it. The sirens come on. I just looked and I go, oh, no, it's the one I hate. I love all the rest, but I don't like him. He wasn't in church. It was fair enough to not like him. No, I'm only kidding. But I didn't like him. And he pulled over. I said, hey, Lucky, I've just heard all this great stuff about you by Matt, the police. And, you know, I heard that you spoke at the police conference and all this stuff. And you're doing all this stuff with the gangs. And I've just seen you haven't got your safety belt on. You've got to put it on because we need you safe now that you've changed. Is there a ticket with that? No, I'm just telling you, put it on. Oh, sweet as brother. That was the last cop that I didn't like gone. Me and him are brothers. He goes, wait till you hear my testimony. I'll tell you about it. He goes, I've heard all about what you're doing now. For God, you're serving God. He goes, man, it's a massive change. Amen. I was so stoked to see him because I'd forgiven all the others and it was all finished except for him. And that was it, gone. Brother full of police. Spoken at the police conference, I've got invited to speak at it again this year. Of all the people, truly of all the people, only God does this. Nobody else. After this, I got left here. You know, after my life changed within a year and a half, I became a pastor. I got ordained as a pastor for new life. Do you know that the week after I got ordained as a pastor, I got made a senior pastor for New Life. I'm the only senior pastor for New Life that doesn't have a church. 
thank goodness. Pity you pastors, Andre and, you know, Lyndon, all the people you've got to deal with. I don't have the patience, sorry, Lord, but. But I got ordained as a senior pastor in your life. God does that. I hadn't even read the Bible. Eight pages. Don't even know what eight they are. And I've said before, I'll never read another page because I, because I have dyslexia and I can't comprehend stuff. But the Bible, I know with everything in me, that is God's word. And that's good enough for me. And the other good thing about it is I know that to love the Lord God with all your heart, sin, and soul. That's what I live by. I love him with everything I have. And I can do that because I do have mental health issues. There's no 99. I'm all good or all bad. I spent 50 years being all bad, and now I spend the rest of my days being all good. And I'm all in. That's what God wants. Your obedience. Your commitment. And to love my neighbours, I want to be loved myself. Two greatest scriptures. That's all I've got to live by. Don't always love all my neighbours. Some of them I struggle with. Especially Ron. One of my neighbours up home. But I do pray for him. But I can't get on with everybody. And the word I live by is obedience. And that's key for me. But the funny thing is, my mother, as I said all the way through, is she was a Christian. Do you know that she came and picked me up when I was 16 years old getting out of boys' home, Stanmore Boys' home. I wasn't 16, actually. It was just before I was 16. She came and picked me up like any other time. And she said, hey, listen here, son. What is it that you really want out of life? Is there something that will help you stop coming, turn into crime? Well, an obvious answer for a 15-year-old was, yeah, he gives a million bucks. Because they don't have it, son. She goes, is there anything else that would help you change your life? I said, yeah, there is. What is it? I said, um, okay, this is what I like. I'd like a shitty house. An HQ Holden station wagon. A little boat so I can go fishing when it's flat. And I want a brand new surfboard every year. And just to be left alone. That's all I want, Mum. And you know how I told you my mother was a praying mother? Prayed for me every day. When she heard that, she put that into action. She prayed for that for me every day. I know that to this, to this day. And I know God answered it. Answered it. Because within three months of becoming a Christian, I left Kaikoura because of the earthquake in Kaikoura, and no, it wasn't my fault. We'd only been there three months. We had to leave. The house we were in, ruined. Couldn't get a rental because of infrastructure. They were all taken up by the workers that turned up. So we couldn't get a rental, nothing. But I had a house up north. Three months with becoming a Christian, I got given a free house. I got given a free house. I got given a car. And I got given a boat. And I got given my wife, because my mother would have thought there's no point in being on his own. She was always trying to be a matchmaker. Mum just didn't know the hookers and strippers on you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. She didn't really know the world that I was in. But she wanted a person that was going to be a godly woman. And that's exactly what I got. Three months with him becoming a Christian. And the thing is, God will honour everything that he has for you when you walk in it. And I walked in it. And I got given the whole lot. That doesn't happen. And um, boy, I'll tell you right now, this testimony is about how good God is, not how bad I've been. It's about how good he's been, how loving he is, how nobody's too far gone, that he can save you, is there for you, and how much do you want to give? How much do you truly want to give to God? 
How much are you all in? How many people say I'm all in, but they turn up late? All these funny little things. You know, if you want to be invested in it, then prove it. It's all about your heart. Because, um, you know, with the world I was in, there's a lot of cheap talk. And I hear that in the churches too. And I'm saying this lovingly. God's got so much on for you, what he wants for you. He, there's a mandate for your life. Are you doing what God has called you to do? Or are you doing what you want to do? Or where you think you fit? Honestly, here's a plan for everybody's lives. Everyone's lives. And you need to work out what you're mandated for, what your calling is that he's called you to do. And believe me, what you think and what he thinks are two different things. Because he wants to honour you. And when you walk in it, man, there's some blessings coming out. I feel like I'm very, I'm, I'm extremely blessed. I'm very thankful for what I've done in my life. Because without him, I was nothing. And without him now, I'd still be nothing. But because of him, he loves us so much and he qualifies us, eh? Qualifies the unqualified. Because if my, what I do was a job, and it is, but it was a job you had to go to, apply for, nobody in their right mind would employ me. Only him. So, uh, what else do I have here? I think pretty much that's it. Yeah. So, I just, uh, God bless you all. Um, good on you for coming. It's been good being with you guys, eh? Especially with you men. Um, over the last few days, oh, I've loved having my time with you. Getting to know you guys, and I know that we'll see plenty of each other coming up too. But also good to um, connect with you, Lyndon, and you too, Dre. And, um, you know, I, I've been an honour to be here with you guys. I've been excited about coming here. It is what it is with this COVID stuff and, um, you know, having to have church like this. But, hey, you know, uh, we're two or more together, eh? Um, it's all good, and we'll push through this, and things will change. So just God bless you and, and team from Cornerstone, eh? And, yeah, wish you all the best.